We have timed our study through the Apostles' Creed, so today we come to, on the third day, he rose again. I thought it would be great if we began our study by saying this confession of faith together, and let's say this with conviction. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let me just pray again. Father, this is the core of our faith, and today we come to the core of the core, that there is an empty tomb, there is a living Savior, there is a life everlasting that gives us hope eternal, and we celebrate that. We bless you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. For us as a family, we're coming into Easter holiday having lost loved ones this year. And we have not been closed about that with you. We've walked through that together. I know that that's true of others in this room. For myself, this is my first Easter without my dad. And so it brings back um, amazing memories of Easter. My dad knew how to do Easter as a pastor. My wife's first Easter without her mother. Our son-in-law David's first Easter without Ben, his youngest brother, even as we are here today. Anna and David are with his family in church, no doubt, singing the songs of hope and the resurrection. And, you know, holidays um, for Christians, when you lose people, have this interesting blend. There's pain mixed with hope. It's not one or the other. There's sadness, but it's mixed with joy. At Christmas time, the source of our hope and our joy is that God didn't stay unreachable in heaven. And the early part of the creed that we've worked through helps us understand the the great miracle of the incarnation, that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we find hope at Christmas because we know that God understands. He understands. He's experienced life. He's experienced brokenness and hardship. In Easter, we find hope and joy because Christ wasn't defeated by that experience, but he's the firstborn from among the dead. And so of all the holidays for a Christian, even with the sadness of loved ones that we miss, we find great hope. Paul put it this way, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that hope that sets Christian people apart when we've experienced loss and tragedy because we have a hope that can endure. Death has lost its sting. I think it was George Sweeting, former president of Moody Bible Institute, tells the story of being a boy and um, he was deathly allergic to bee stings He and his father were driving in the summer. They had the windows open, and a bee was in the car. 
George started screaming, scared to death. And while they're driving, the father reaches over and cups the bee, catches the bee, and holds it in his hand. George breathed a sigh of relief and began to relax. And then after a moment, the dad opened his hand again and the bee flew away. And George started screaming all over again until the dad showed him in the palm of his hand was the stinger of the bee. He'd taken the sting away and George had nothing to fear. That's Easter. Christ has taken away the ultimate sting of death, not the sadness of losing those that we love, but the burning sting, the defeat, that death somehow is the end. It is not the end. It is the beginning of life everlasting. I've told you the story, I I believe, about growing up in Clinton, New Jersey, dairy farm area, and um, my dad always would have vespers on New Year's Eve. We'd all sing, and we'd take favorites from the hymn book. And Howard Dieter always wanted to sing Amazing Grace and thought it was very clever that when we got to the point when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, to have us all sing when we've been there 10 zillion years, bright shining as the sun. As a teenage boy, I thought that was the corniest thing I'd ever heard. And so I politely, with everyone else, sang, when we've been there zillion, just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I'm now no longer a 12-year-old boy. I understand what it means to measure your life now by decades left. And I have great, I think Howard Dieter was the most brilliant man I ever met. That's the hope. It's tens of zillions of years. If you don't grasp that, you don't understand what the Easter message is about. If you think death is the ultimate defeat and are angry at God because those that you knew have missed out on this life, you don't understand heaven. You don't understand eternal hope. That's what the resurrection brings us. Death has lost its sting. It has lost its power over us. So that's what we're looking at today, those words from the creed on the third day. But before we do that, we need to unpack some other words that precede that statement of victory. Last week, Paul did a powerful job helping us understand the passion, the death of Christ. But in between the cross and the empty tomb, the creed insists that we pause when it says he was crucified, died, was buried. Not just buried, but he descended to the dead. In order for us to fully appreciate and understand the power of the resurrection, we need to unpack those phrases. And so I have two simple points we're going to work through. The first is the magnitude of the death of Jesus, and that will help us embrace the second point, the magnificence of the resurrection of Jesus. So why don't you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 and pull out your notes, and we'll work through these points together. The first part of this section of the creed we're going to look at is this phrase, crucified, died, and buried. And if if you have been with us through this study, you might at this moment say, why such detail here? We've learned that the creed is very sparing in its choice of words. The minimum belief system that unites all believers in Christ. The writers of the creed are careful in their choice of words, and yet here they seem to overdo it, don't they? 
I mean, if Christ was crucified, doesn't that follow that he died? And why the buried part? Why is that so important? We tend to jump right from cross to empty tomb. The creed forces us to slow down at the death of Christ and consider its importance. 1 Corinthians 15, we're gonna work through most of the chapter today, but we're just gonna look at the first couple of verses. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you take your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So let's just be clear about what it is we're about to read. Paul is about to remind the church at Corinth of the essential pieces of the gospel that Paul received, that he in turn passed on to them. It's the gospel on which they have put their hope, which means their faith is anchored in it, and it's the gospel that will bring them into eternal life. So he's reminding them of the importance the centrality of what he's about to read. Verse three, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have now died. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So the gospel is not just the cross. If you're willing to accept the idea that Jesus died for our sins, but aren't willing to accept the miraculous result in the resurrection, then you don't understand the gospel that Scripture teaches and that we have held as Christians for 2,000 years. The crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus are three important pieces to the gospel. But why would Scripture emphasize the burial of Christ? Well, for numerous reasons. One, as an apologetic. By the time of Paul's writing, there were others that were putting out this notion that maybe Jesus never really died. Maybe he survived the crucifixion. The word that modern skeptics refer to is swooned. He swooned, and then somehow the the coolness of the tomb revived him and he walked out. Those kind of stories were already around, and so when the apostles passed on the gospel, they wanted to make sure that people understand Jesus died, and they buried his body. The second point that I want to make, the crucifixion of Christ, the burial of Christ, how he was buried, and the resurrection of Christ were all prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. Christ fulfilled prophecy even in how he was buried. Paul offers three defenses of the reality of the gospel and the resurrection. The first thing is the fulfillment of Scripture. Another thing he offers is that it was a fact in history. He says, on the third day he rose again. Why is it important that we keep saying on the third day? So we remember that you can put a date on it. It has a point in history. That's the second defense of it. And the third defense he offers is eyewitnesses. 
hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses, many of whom were still alive at the time of Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. And he simply said, you can just go talk to them. They saw that he was crucified. They saw that he was dead, killed by professional executioners. His heart pierced with a sword, water and blood coming out, speaking of a heart rupture. There's no doubt, based on the historical telling of the crucifixion, that Jesus had died. So it's important. The death and the burial of Jesus matter. But what about this part that Jesus descended to the dead? What does that mean? There are a lot of ideas about what happened in between the cross and Easter Sunday morning. We take some obscure passages in Scripture and suggest a whole doctrine about Jesus fulfilling some critical mission. And my honest response to all that is that I don't know exactly what Jesus did during that period because the Bible is not as clear as some try to make it. And that's not what the creed is trying to address. You see, the Hebrew word for dead is sheol. The Greek equivalent in the New Testament is Hades. And what that simply means is the place where spirits go when they leave the body. It's the place of the dead. And at different times in the Bible, people had different concepts of what Sheol or Hades was. There was a second term in Greek, Gehenna, which is hell. That's what we associate with hellfire, brimstone, the book of Revelation, the place of eternal torment. When the creed is referring to Jesus descending to the dead, it is not referring to Gehenna or hell. It's referring to the place of the dead, and its intention is to help us understand the full magnitude of the death that Jesus suffered. So let me first tell you three things real quick that this idea of Jesus descending to the dead is not about. It's not about Jesus bringing the gospel message to people that had already died. That's completely against everything that Scripture says. It's appointed unto a person to die, and then after that comes judgment. What you do in this life sets your eternal destiny. The second thing is it does not mean that Jesus suffered the fires of hell. You will hear some who suggest that Jesus actually went to hell for sin that he suffered the torments of hell, and they will further suggest that he had to be born again. That is not what the creed is talking about, and that's not what the Bible is talking about anywhere where it talks about Jesus descending into death. A third thing it isn't about is something that Jesus had to do to add to his work on the cross. He received God's full punishment for sin on the cross, and that's why when he was done, he cried, it is finished. So what does Scripture mean when it alludes to this idea and the creed clearly says that he descended to the dead? Well, here's what I think. I think the intention here is to help us understand first that Jesus experienced death completely. You see, our focus is on how he died. It wasn't just the act of dying. Jesus experienced the state of death. His spirit 
left his body. His body was buried in a borrowed tomb, but like all of us, it was just a body. One of the things that has always struck me when I've uh, participated in funerals, if you go up and you, you put your hand on that body, you realize that's all it is. There's no one there. I've had the privilege of being present when numerous people passed away as a pastor ministering to families. And you can tell when the physical body is no longer holding the person. Listen, Jesus experienced that death. That's what the creed is trying to help us understand. Second thing is that Jesus was resurrected not just from the tomb, but from the dead. Finally, it helps us understand that when Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated not only sin, but he defeated death itself. In the beginning of Revelation, John encounters the resurrected, the eternal Christ. He is so glorious that John actually falls down by being in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And then he says this, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. That is Jesus' introduction of himself to John in the book of Revelation. The ascended Christ, what does he declare about himself? I faced death itself, and I walked away with the keys It means I have completely defeated not only sin, but death. I went there, I took the keys. Death has been defeated. So powerful to understand the full magnitude of Jesus' death. Now, let's move on. As Paul now helps us understand the magnificence of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, as we're reading this chapter, many of us come to it and presume because of how I'm going to use it today, that this chapter is an argument for or an apologetic for the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, what Paul is trying to do is to prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but he's not. The established resurrection of Jesus in history at this point is so clear that what Paul is actually doing is using the established fact of the resurrection of Jesus to argue for the fact that we're going to be resurrected as well. And the first thing he does is to talk about how hopeless our faith would be without it. Verse 12, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. So is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep, which means died in Christ, are lost If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Paul lists four things that would be true of our faith if Christ 
hadn't been raised from the dead. It would be a hopeless faith. First of all, that our faith would be false. We are false witnesses. So our message is a lie. Second thing he points out is that our faith would be futile. We are still in our sins. That underscores the importance of the resurrection in the gospel. If Christ just died for our sins, but didn't have the power and the authority to take his life back, then his death is meaningless. So without the resurrection, we're still in our sins. The work of the cross accomplishes nothing. It was futile. The third thing he says is that our faith is fatal. Those who have died, our loved ones who have died, believing in Christ, have perished because they have died in their sin, not in grace. And the fourth thing he says is that our faith is just foolish. Foolish. Above all men, if Christ hasn't been raised and we preach that he's been raised and our whole faith is built on it, if Christ hasn't been raised, what we deserve is to be pitied. It's a hopeless faith without the resurrection. But that's why he goes on and says, in fact, it's not a hopeless faith. It's a hope-filled faith, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Uh, Let's just for the sake of time skip forward to verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and this mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul lays out first an argument that says if there's no resurrection, don't even bother with the Christian faith. It's hopeless. But then he says, in fact, Christ has been raised, and so the opposite is true of all those things. We are not false, but our message is true. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Our faith isn't futile, but it's real. It's real. In Christ, all are truly made alive. It's not fatal, but we have life eternal. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And we are not fools. We are, in fact, victors because God gives us the victory. That's how significant, how central, how essential the resurrection is. And then finally, he goes on and he helps us explore the implications of it. He's presented the gospel at the beginning of the chapter. He's reminded us of the irrefutable evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and those that were still alive who would stand up and verify it, by the way, most of whom would ultimately die for that testimony that Christ is alive because they could not deny what they had seen. And having established the fact of the resurrection, now he goes on and he explores 
the importance of it. Without it, our faith is a waste. But with it, our faith is the faith. Our hope is the hope. Christ is truly the way, the truth, and the life. And now he's going to land it for us. Look at what he says at verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, in other words, because all of this is true, therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, three things that ought to be true of our life because of the resurrection. First, he says, be firm. Let nothing move you. Our confidence in our faith is because the tomb is empty. Second thing he says is, be faithful. Give yourselves fully to the work. Be faithful to it. You can be confident that you are fulfilling an eternal purpose and there is an eternal reward and there is an eternal life and therefore you should be about your eternal vocation. And then finally, he says, be fearless because you know your labor is not in vain. You're not wasting your time. Christians ought to be fearless people about life, about death, about hardships. Doesn't mean we're not wounded. Doesn't mean we don't face sorrow. Doesn't mean our heart doesn't ache. But we can face it all fearlessly. Because Christ says, I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death. In the grave. Father, we thank you. We celebrate the truth of this. We pray that we would be a people who would be firm and faithful in our service and fearless in facing all that life has to offer. Help us understand that our Christ said, I am the resurrection because I live, you will live. And with that certain hope, Father, help us to celebrate and to live well and to die boldly, knowing that it is just the beginning of a glorious resurrection with our risen Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.